So Orgo, last we have a conversation that we've been trying to schedule for, I think, a few months now. Usually I would try to start by framing sort of your background and how you got into architecture and, and where you are now. But I think what we were just talking about off record or off script, whatever the term would be, is quite interesting. So you showed before this conversation a, a range of projects, right? Some are sort of in a range of geographies. Some are dealing with high-end programs. Some are dealing with uh, more affordable programs. Some are dealing with NGOs. Some are dealing with social projects. And you just framed an interesting question of, I suppose, ethics, purity, commissions, and so forth. What's been your, I think this is this is a key question when you're starting a firm, right? How do you, you're venturing into a great wild unknown with the formation of your office, right? AUR. And you're, you know, still relatively young fellow, and you're probably having to deal with probably an idealistic, optimistic approach to the world, as well as the heavy burden of financial realities of mortgages and debts and things of this sort. So what's been your, how do you balance those things in these initial steps? How do you keep the spark of optimism, idealism alive, but also deal with the financial realities of the world? Jem, uh, first off, thank you for having me here. It's, we have been talking for a while about having this conversation. I'm really glad we are speaking. Thank you so much. Good question to start. I think the way I would approach it or the way I would think of this is I wouldn't start a practice or I wouldn't start a firm if I don't have anything to say, right? Meaning if I would just get a commission from a client and do a renovation or do a housing, small housing project, but I don't know what I have to say to the world. I think to me, there is no point of having a practice. But in all reality, I think a lot of architecture firms are not making Making, essentially creating any narrative or saying anything to the world. But I would say that I'm more interested in the artistic approach to a project or more of a conceptual approach to a project where we are not essentially waiting for commissions. There are projects that are more, for the lack of a better word, regular or follows the traditional approach where we have a client, where we you know, are responding to capital per se, or we are responding to a brief or a program. And that is the majority of an architecture practice or most architecture practices. And I think the reality is a lot of our projects fall in that category. But in parallel, what we are trying to create or carve is how can we respond to the world like an artist does or react to the world that an artist does? Is it the way the world it is, the way it is, you want to see it the way it is, or you want to see it the way it should be based on uh, what you think about architecture? And I think uh, for me personally, and my practice with my partner and friend in India, what I have been trying to do is address the notion of time in architecture. And that caters to a lot of different ways, I think. One critical way is how do you respond to time in the sense of historical events or time in the sense of material memory of uh, either you're operating in a ruined site or how do you respond to time in the sense of atmosphere or phenomena that can induce a sense of time or how do you respond to material change? So we try to engage in these critical questions, but in all honesty, not all projects will have those aspects. But I think what is critical for us is how do you create a narrative? You know, even though the projects might not have those particular aspects that I'm talking about, but how do you create an architecture of narrative? How can, how can you create a story that takes into account the story of the project before your intervention or before you work and the story of the project after your intervention? I think the 
What do you, so you said time, for instance, when did you come up with that as an idea? Is that before you started the practice or is that something that's been formulated through projects? I would say, so we, we started in 2019, but, you know, several years before that, I have been engaging in projects in collaboration, in parallel my work and during that time I had been reading a lot and I needed a framework that would be able to tie projects that are in multiple geographies, projects that are in the US, projects that are in India and China, multiple scales and multiple uh, points of origin, like if it's a client-based commission or if it's a work with an NGO or... um, So that's when you know, based on a lot of reading, I was also writing on the aspect of time. So it is based on some work that it got crystallized when we had active projects when which we were dealing with. But I've also been working on a book for the last year and it will take probably another three, four years. But it tries to frame all these issues that I think I'm trying to deal with through real projects and frame it in the book. So I think I think the um, I forget who it was I think it's Thomas Daniel. Uh, he's this he's this historian that that gave this really interesting lecture I, th- I think out of the AA I've been I've been just zooming through AA uh, Architectural Association their their digital archives and looking at these uh, interviews and, and and lectures that they give but he did this interesting interview or he he was doing this project tracing modernology up to basically well let me rewind basically there's this book that a lot of architects know right called Made in Tokyo and I hadn't heard of it until basically I came to Spain but it seems like there's a specific track of architectural discourse that knows this and i assume the east coast you must have heard of this i have i've heard of it but not read it yeah so that's a whole nother thing i feel like there's realms of architecture like certain books in architecture that certain geographies know and other ones don't and so this was one uh that i had completely skipped over but anyway so the thomas daniel he goes through this lineage of how made in tokyo comes to take place and he talks about like the predecessors of this movement and so forth and he has this moment in the lecture where he basically they ask him why didn't you interview this specific office about their intentions and he says one that he tried to but it didn't come to you know fruition but the other aspect he said it probably wouldn't have made too much uh, it wouldn't have had too much impact because a lot of times when you interview architects they actually have a lot of difficulty figuring out why they're doing what they're doing now i say this because for instance you say time and for me that doesn't quite encapsulate what you just discussed before for for instance that i think it's less about i mean of course there's an aspect of storytelling and layering and things of this sort but the way you were describing the projects is finding significance somehow in them that you know we're faced with um you know a world i think that's in the going through like great changes in dynamics and there's great tensions embedded in this world and architects are faced with this quandary of of getting you know projects from the high end from the low end the social sector the public sector the private sector and so forth and some of those sectors touch those tensions and dynamics really well and they're trying to you know resolve them or act as generative forces within them and other forces are maybe more detached from them or partially the causes of them right and I think for years, the way you just, you, you know, your practice, the way you described it is that you're, it seems like you're trying to form an architecture of significance that is deeply interwoven with the 
realities of the current day. Uh, you know, that's sort of your broad endeavor, it sounds like, that's weaving through project to project to project. But, you know, depending on the nature of the project, obviously there's degrees of depth of significance that you can that you can work through, that some projects allow for uh, a certain high degree of depth and maybe other ones have a bit less uh, a more shallow capacity to achieve depth within within significance. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I think I like the word when you when you talk about facing reality and creating significance in reality. I think that's something that many artists or architects aspire to create significance through by maneuvering through reality. And I think we are dealing with architects are dealing more with the realities of world than artists are. But at the same time, I feel uh, what we are looking at is the aspect of continuity. How can we how can we create uh, temporal continuity and yet provide specificity to the location? Because that's something not easy when you're working in different countries and different contexts with different historical narratives. And how do you provide continuity? And to me, I think continuity is more important than novelty or creating something that is original, which means that you know any if originality is is a means and it's if you think of that as an end in itself, then I feel there is no meaning. So I think in our projects, let's say uh, our project with uh, World Bank for the cafe in Lumbini, I think we are dealing with a ruined site. We are dealing with temple ruins of where Buddha was born. Then we are dealing with an intervention by Kenzo Tange. And how can we interweave in that narrative of time of a historical ruin that is 2,500 years old, intervention that's 40, 50 years old? And how do you create an intervention within that context and create a storyline that connects with a broader narrative? narrative of time. And similarly, in the uh, Sundarban project where we are working with an NGO to create, and we self-initiated the project with them to create these storm shelters that would act as agricultural community centers. We are looking at the traditional methods and means of construction, but how you know the village life worked, how architecture in those villages were. And if we can provide a continuity to that, because that is something that is being lost. And uh, that is something we are actively trying to preserve. But in our own way, if I have to talk about our work with, uh, we, we are working with on the subject of partition of India, which was the largest forced human migration in history that happened right after India was partitioned in 1947. We are dealing with an historical event and we are dealing with material memory. We are dealing with inherited memory from that generation who are dying. And how can we take that forward, continue that narrative through architecture, but also through other means, through virtual means, through activism, through archiving uh, of interviews like the the nonprofit is engaged in. So yes, there is significance that maneuver through reality to create significance. But at the same time, through our projects with varying means, uh, we are trying to address the issue of continuity, which is more important to us than originality or novelty. I think meaning is more important than novelty. And maybe we try to stay away from a style, try to create, think of every project as different because we feel every project has its own route. And if you address that route, things will be different. But at the same time, not we don't try to create novelty for novelty's sake. We try to see if we can provide that continuity through through our designs. You know, it's interesting. I remember one of the first offices I worked at immediately after 
grad school was this fellow, the boss, uh, our boss, Joe Haskett, gave me, I mean, he was a great boss to start with, but the, and it's sort of, I guess that's probably why his lessons sort of echo through my head uh, to a great degree, but he had showed this book about an architectural office that was innovative in terms of, let's say, formal languages, the way you're talking about, like style. He, he had talked about them as one of these firms that was very successful in avoiding stylistic monotony. Um, and he, so he showed this book, right? That was a collection of their works. And he, uh, was surprised because actually the book was, had sort of a very clear style to it, right? That from project to project to project, there was this clear stylistic, you know, you could sense it, you could sense that there was some repetition going on, that there was a clear concrete language that had been embedded into it and so on. And what he found was that it was sort of a later publication than what he remembered the first, the first book that they had published. And the the comment that he had given me was that, you know, this sometimes happens when architectural offices start to use the same details, start to see, use the same contractors, start to use the same builders and so forth, that you start to recycle uh, things that had worked in prior projects um, because, you know, they work and you know what to expect from them and so forth. Now, when you were talking about, you know, you have a lot of projects in different locations here, and I'll, I'll post these, I think, with the, the Instagram post. I can, I can share some images there so people listening can have reference. But maybe there's something to that, that if you work in different regions uh, and actually respect vernacular traditions or vernacular building cultures or the actual building cultures that are around you then that may be a good safeguard against style because you're you're actively allowing your projects to mutate with the surroundings you summed it up better than i could in so many i I used too many more words than you did i think (laughs) i think that's that's a very good point and i i think you are right in a way i feel that when you are responding to context, not just formally, but looking at logic of construction, as we spoke about in our last conversation, right? Construction systems in like the US where it's uh, very representational, where you are layering brick over a wood two by six construction mm. versus when you're actually constructing things out of brick. So uh, I'm, what I'm saying is that when you are addressing the very logic or the very history of the act of building in that particular region, it is easier, to be honest, to mutate. Let's say if I were to build, if I were to become a residential architect that just does houses in the U.S., there is a chance that I will run out of ideas. There is a chance that I can only innovate to an extent. I feel with different contexts and even within India, operating in different contexts and working on residential and office interiors in the U.S. or working on commercial projects in China, because of the wide variety of contexts, I think there is a lot more to draw from. And to your point, I think that is like a support system that helps you create meaning, but at the same time, things looking different. There's not no stylistic similarity because you are addressing those contexts. I, I think very well put, Jen. Mm. I think I agreed with your assessment. <laughs> I think, and that is true, like without any pretending to be, you know, if we both get down from the ivory towers of architecture, I think it is a great thing to address uh, when we are addressing the specificity of the local, as or as Kenneth Frampton called it, you know, critical regionalism. But I think it sort of gives me a purity to work with. But at the same time, you are right that it is a broader palette to deal with. 
And as I said, if I were to do residential construction in the U.S. only as uh, the type of project, things might start looking similar. Mm. I mean, if we like, for instance, in your the works you show, I mean, the greatest contrast is probably this, you know, if we look at Krishibari compared to the project in, in Wuhan, right, the wetland park, I mean, very drastic differences of um, formal languages being deployed there. I think that I mean, that's I, I feel like there's something to maybe an urge to learn, maybe an urge to sort of I, I mean, I like the approach where you say, you know, I understand, I think, more the what you mean by continuity and time in that respect. I would still say there's a better keyword to use uh, than than time because I think there's something about continuity significance. Like time is a bit of a neutralized term that I think a lot of architects use to define things. But I think what you're describing is actually something much more much more meaningful. Like when you say meaning, I think I, I grasp more what you're saying. But I would say, you know, I, I remember listening to a. No, go ahead. I'm scared. Of <laughs> That's why I said when you when you want to do the interview, I was like, oh, this is the only person. To be honest, I've worked with a lot of I've worked with a lot of architects, a lot of smart people, and but very few people I respect the way I you respect you, and I feel it's got to do with your psychoanalytic background. <laughs> 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 I feel like you have a tendency sort of to force people to kind of speak up things that, you know, that, that's underlying. And not to say that under a layer of pretense, but underlying because of I'm thinking of it in a different way. But the way you the way you psychoanalyze things, I really like that approach. <laughs> and I feel I'm, I'm, I'm learning about the way I work from you. Uh, than I have learned from myself. So that is a, a good compliment. <laughs> well, I, this is the, there's two things. One is, it's always strange. Like, I'm just reminded of high school where at that moment in time, you think there's very different, like you feel like the people you look up to have a very different understanding of the world or the way they're looking at the world. But then when you talk to them like 10 years later, they, they sort of break down that they were essentially no different than anybody else. For you, for instance, I mean, at Cornell, for instance, I thought you you were the, you know, the heavy hitter who was, you know, I just remember you saying something like you were consciously avoiding reading anything besides architecture to sort of, you know, amount this level of knowledge about the field. And I remember that's like a level of self-control and dedication that I, you know, rarely encountered. But so, I mean, just to say, it's kind of interesting to hear the story flip. I think very interesting you point that out because you remember the last time we met was when you were interviewing Noam Chomsky and <laughs> you were staying at my place in Boston and he said, hey, Orga, I'm going to go for an interview. And you didn't tell me who you were interviewing. And it's like, do you mind, you know, helping me do the video and take photographs? And then I asked you, uh, who are you interviewing? I said, Noam Chomsky. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> interviewing Noam Chomsky, asking me to be the assistant. Of course I would go. Uh, but at that point, that was like nine years back, we uh, I guess you were not so different, but in all honesty, I was very different. I was more focused within the interiority of our field, and I was trying to build all these uh, construction or building technology knowledge for the lack of a better term. But then as I started working with other firms, I started reading about other stuff beyond architecture, and I 
felt I could. I almost feel that we are having this conversation today. Nine years back, our conversation would have been very different just because based on the stuff that I have read and I feel I'm kind of closer to the way you think about things. And uh, I think that's something I feel good about because otherwise you are kind of lost in this trap of a disciplinary knowledge that can only go so far because we exist within a broader society, within a broader mm. realm. And if we are not engaged in that broader realm of history or broader realm of society through other means, through theory, through history, through sociology, through psychoanalysis, I think uh, we, we just remain constrained. So I, and I feel, although my re respect for you remains the same, but I feel I can engage in a more meaningful, a better conversation where you still analyze my mind better than I do, which you did nine years back. But <laughs> I feel... And that's a beautiful trait that you have. And But I feel now I can respond to that without being, you know, I don't know. I think I, we can engage in a conversation. And similar to some of my high school friends who I thought were really good, but now you see there is a point of merger almost happening after you know, 12 or, uh, sorry, 18 or 16 years of high school. And similarly, I think there is a merger that's sort of happening between the way you think and I think. And not to say that you haven't grown, but I'm saying that I have I have gotten interested in things other than architecture that has helped tremendously, and especially working with these trusts and these NGOs and nonprofit where I'm working with historians and sociologists and artists. I think that has helped that, but also a constant reading more than architecture, which I was I was completely opposed to that nine years back when we last had a long conversation. We finished a bottle of Raka. <laughs> over, over yeah i think the funny one, occurrence i suppose is that i'm i may be working in the opposite direction now for a long time i had difficulty picking up architecture books or, or listening to architecture lectures and i've been making actually a conscious effort to try to tie back into it and it's precisely what you're you know you're talking about is that there's this very specific way in which architecture disciplines talk i'm finding there's interesting variations between you know geography to geography based on you know who were the heavy hitters in terms of the literature and so on of those regions but i found myself like unable to talk the way a lot of architects talk to the point where i mean this was a recent one for instance where i you know i submitted what i i would consider architectural research to a publication and the feedback i got was amazing to hear because they basically thought i wasn't an architect doing architectural research that i was coming basically um, a sociologist or an urbanist who had randomly submitted to this journal and like it was this very strange occurrence because i thought you know i had even changed the language to a point where it could be accommodated within this but there's this really heavy boundary yeah within architecture that has a very specific language yeah that I remember from Cornell that I became interested in it and very quickly disinterested in it because of the levels of yeah. fog in it. And to give an example, the you know the Neil Denari, for instance, was somebody I remember spoken of as sort of this intellectual boogeyman in Cornell to a great degree. That this person who had fantastically dense, layered approaches to the world, highly complex thinker, and so forth. And I I had never really gotten too far into his readings and or 
lectures and writings and so forth. But I recently listened to, again, his lecture at the AA, which I guess was a lecture he gave quite a significant time after his one of his initial lectures. But he started talking in this language that I remember from Cornell, and it just threw me for a loop where he talked about, you know... Shrink wrapping. <laughs> shrink, he, he talked about shrink wrapping. He talked about... I, actually, I don't think he said shrink wrapping, but he talked about sticky back technology. He talked about field conditions. He talked about the morphology of light, like these very specific terms that if you're within that sector of architectural writing and thinking, you know how to chew on those words well. But if you're outside of it, it just sounds like gibberish. It does. Uh, it does. And you're right. And back then I was sort of infatuated. I took Neil's, Neil Denari's studio and I was infatuated with a lot of a lot, a lot of this verbiage. And you have to understand, I did my undergrad in India where there is very little theoretical learning, to be honest. We, you know, we do projects, but there is very little theory. So there's very little reading. I did my part of reading, but then when you read Delirious New York as part of your curriculum, and you get or any other any of those uh, traditional Cornell books or uh, architectural books, you get sort of infatuated. And I, mm. I went through that trope. I went through that phase, and it took me a while to get out of it. It took me like three, four years to get out of it. And then now, when I not to insult Neil's works or his or the way he formulates his works but now when I look back at those words I feel no one other than an architect can associate themselves with that language and I think that is very limiting so I then got consciously became very conscious of not trying to because I was I learned it and then sort of unlearned it if you know what I mean like yeah maybe yeah maybe for you uh, it was a little different you went to undergrad in the U.S. I think in schools in the U.S. there is a theoretical basis of education which is which is good but at the same time I feel there's too much theory for theory's sake in the U.S. I feel if you have to see a theory in, in let's say in European schools I think it's more for the lack of a better word more practical theory and a lot of some things are also dealing with construction theory that is not there in the U.S. I feel uh, but in the U.S. there's a lot of theory for theory's sake and I got infatuated with that and I feel there was quite a bit of learning for me but I consciously tried to get out of that and try to read other people like anthropologists I follow Arjuna Padurai his books then I was reading on subaltern studies because Mm. If I have to, you know, what, what I have been trying to consciously do is read up on India. I was always interested in history, but I have been reading a lot on India, a lot on subaltern studies, which talks about subaltern cultures. Then it talks about uh, Arjuna Padurai, who talks a lot about diasporic cultures and how people... And because I feel those are the things that I uh, struggle with or deal with and people do not talk about or architects very few architects talk about and I feel I consciously decided to read on those subjects and reading them they also are engaged in sort of a disciplinary uh, shackle for the lack of a better word like we have our verbiage an anthropologist will have his verbiage but I realized they are more open than our discipline and to be honest what I feel about architecture is that a lot of theory in architecture that is formulated by practicing architects 
they do not give enough time to formulate that theory. A biggest example of really baseless theory is Patrick Schumacher, right? He writes things without thinking, and then he comes up with these books that are thrown all over the student world, and people get infatuated with them. But when you are dealing in anthropology or sociology, you are dealing in text. Text is their unit of knowledge, or the text is the unit to which they work. But in my opinion, our unit is construction. Our unit is material. And we have to think through those terms. And even if we are formulating a theory, we should not forget the difference between our discipline and between an anthropologist or a sociologist, where they are reacting to society, to human studies. But there is a lot of commonality, and we can learn a lot from those disciplines. But I fundamentally believe that we need to understand material we need to understand means of materials coming together in any theory you we build you can you know talk about phenomenology ontology or whatever it is but we need to be conscious of materials that's what i feel is the biggest difference so reading them it gave me a lot of insight but then in parallel while i was you know working at som or other firms i think learning the craft of detailing learning the craft of designing something and taking it all the way through construction every location of every joint, how things come together. I think that knowledge in parallel with those interdisciplinary readings gave me a good platform to ground my thoughts on. And I think that's something that I wasn't even remotely close to when I met you nine well, the material question is quite interesting. Like I had never considered, you know, if you can ground yourself in an understanding of material in terms of its sourcing, in terms of how it can connect with other materials, in terms of its carbon impact, in terms of its social implications and go into those kind of layers. I think that's, you know, that's what I start to see with the work that you're talking about, because it's not just material detailing and making things really crisp, because I think it's, you know, Neil Denari, for instance, would also talk about himself that way, right? right? The firm understanding of material, the rigor of detailing and so forth. But I think his material palette, for instance, doesn't change yeah. so much. It's more imposed, you know, from geography to geography to geography, whereas yours seems like it actually, the material palette shifts uh, from geography to geography. What Can I ask, what was your, did you have a moment? Um, well, let me phrase it this way. So you asked, for instance, how long it took to shed the weight of sort of the jargon you know, the insularity of our discipline. It also took me, I'm still trying to understand this, but for me, it took a similar period of time where I think it was in PhD where, and I always thank my advisor, Howard Davis, for this, is that it was basically him and his refusal to use this kind of a language that shifted it for me. What was yours? What was the shift for you? Well, I mean, first thing to clear for everyone, I'm not a writer as much as you are. Like you write better than me. You have been dealing in uh, reading and writing much more than I have. But with that aside, I feel for me, I would say what I just said is that a combination of practice where I learned how to put a building together to the very last joint of two materials coming together. The practicality of that, which is not taught in architecture schools, and at the same time, broadening the horizon of being aware of the world around you, the way it is, the way you want to see the world around you by reading up on these subjects. Then when you revisit a lot of architectural theory, it begins to lose water or it begins to mm. lose the that it held for me before because I was becoming more and more aware of you know, being a project lead from how to take a project from 
early design to construction administration. And you automatically, through that process, shed a lot of, you unlearn a lot of the things that is held in high regards in architectural school or in architectural academia. But at the same time, a search within myself to find myself through reading about India. I think I came across readings on anthropology by Arjuna Padurai or reading on subaltern studies by Gayatri Spivak. That I discovered new territories. So there were these two parallel tracks that were happening. And to be honest, this is the first time in this conversation that I'm trying to frame it together Yeah, yeah. in front of you. You are kind of forcing me to do that. I find great that your ability that I was talking about earlier, I'm able to see that those were the two parallel tracks. I was not consciously tying away from the jargon or architectural theory because in all honesty, I was new to it when I moved to the US 11 years back. I, I wasn't, I had only read very seminal texts, but not a huge variety of texts. So for me, it was a big part got was involved about learning that and being comfortable in that jar- jargon. And then when you start practicing, practicing, knowing about things coming together, putting a project or building together, and in parallel, search from within to read about India and discovering these peripheral disciplines of sociology or anthropology and reading a little bit on them. I'm nowhere an expert. I'm just reading to pique my curiosity in in a a way. But I think that's the process, I would say, that that happened if I have to frame it now. Mm -hmm. No, I I have a similar trajectory, I would say, but there, you're talking about something, some form of lo- you know knowledge that you've acquired, almost losing its its weight or its the amount of space it's taking up in your head or the you know strength that it holds over you, and then you immediately search for or happen to stumble upon another set of knowledge that you think has potentially more weight or has more significance for you. You're right. I would say that's phrased well. Yeah. So what's the biography here? So you said, for instance, in the beginning, too, that you had before we started recording that you had some art school background. Uh, I know you from Cornell and you did GSD right after and then you, you know, worked a bit in New York. And then when we touched base, I was in, you know, touched base again after many years. I was in Spain or I am in Spain and you're, you know, now forming your office. So what what occurs pre-Cornell and post-Cornell for you? So the, the art school thing I was mentioning as a reaction to what you used to do in studio, which I thought was very refreshing. And I always was jealous because I thought art was a therapy for me. And uh, it's a shame that I haven't painted in a long time. But I'm from the east of India. I'm Bengali. And you know, as a community, are very much into the arts and literature. And it's a lot about creativity and intellectual discourse in the part of India I grew up in. And my parents, seeing that I was just playing around with pencils and trying to draw the objects around me. They, Mom and Dad, they took me to an art school when I was literally three and a half. And I would cry and shout and not want to be there because I, <laughs> I was really stubborn and I still am very stubborn and I didn't want to follow the way, you know, sit down and, you know, draw and do things that he wanted to do. But very soon I, I loved it and uh, I st- loved it and stayed there for 12 years. And I learned how to paint in oil colors and watercolors and acrylic and mixed media, did exhibitions. I actually did an exhibition very close to where you are in Astoria, Oregon, when I was like a 16-year-old. I sent a painting that got selected. So that's my past life. And I always... (laughs) But the training that I had in art school, it was very about imitation or copying things. It was not about thinking, which is something in retrospect, when I look back and when I think about it, I feel I was trained to learn how to 
build a skill of being the perfect realist painter. And I would be able to create paintings that I could, you know, fake a, a photograph, right? And it, it, mm. it was, I got really good at it. I created a lot of paintings, did some exhibitions, went to a lot of art competitions, won almost every single one of them. I was pretty good at it. But then in a parallel world, I, I had a cousin who went to the same undergrad in India as I did. And he uh, went to Cornell for real estate. He didn't practice architecture after undergrad. He went to real estate management. But I knew about him. I had seen some of his models. I, and I also thought I would be doing something bigger than art by being an architect. So as a seven-year-old, randomly, I started saying I want to be an architect. Mm. <laughs> what it entailed I didn't know what it would take and no one no one did in my family very to be honest but I eventually went to SPA Delhi which was a good, really good school the best school at that time in India to do study architecture but even in India I felt a lot of the education was uh, very fine art driven and very driven by getting the most functional plan on the planet the discussion for the entire semester was on the plan we never talk, spoke about what the building is or what it should be, what is the broader idea about a project. That was never discussed. That was a universal truth. I feel there were some aberrations, and I tried to move away from that, get, get interested in other things. But I feel then I moved to uh, Rome after I did an internship in Shanghai. There was always itch for me to travel and work. So I moved to Shanghai, did an internship. Then after college, went to Rome where I worked with Studio Fuxas, mm. came back to them did a little bit of work myself and taught for a year and came to Cornell where we met. We did the one-year Mark II program. In parallel, I wanted to Something at that point, there have been these infatuation phases in my life. At that point, I thought I wanted to learn more about building technology, design technology, whatever you can call it, and ended up at GST, had a good one and a half year, took some classes in MIT, Media Lab, did some research on uh, housing, uh, but also did a lot of work on materials. That's the time when we met. Yeah, yeah. And and then what happens post-GSD? So you finish up a year and a half and then you start working for SOM? What's the... Yeah, so before GSD, I spent four months at OMA, then four months during GSD, four months at Gary Technologies, where I essentially got paid to do my thesis. And it had nothing to do with what Gary does, but it was part of the technology research practice. Director there was my thesis advisor, where I was looking at form finding uh, using daylight and other things. It was, it was, a lot of it was performative. I was in that mode when you mm -hmm. met me last year. But after that, I was at SOM for uh, six and a half years, since 2013. And during that period, I was lucky enough to get projects built and worked on two high-rise projects, one in San Francisco, one in China that uh, got built. Then uh, Seattle Airport, where I was involved from early design to construction administration, where we built this bridge. But during this process, I worked closely with SOM's only technical partner, uh, Keith Boswell. He is the person I've learned the most about putting a building together. I feel it was a conscious effort in my part. I was not, um, you know, I had my reservations about how design happens at SOM, and I was sort of agnostic to that. I put in my effort, I put in all I had, but also, you know, design, but I was agnostic to the process because I had a different understanding or I had a different framework that I wanted to work in. But while I was at SOM, I think, as I mentioned earlier, learning about a joint, learning about detail, but from a designer's point of view, from, an, from a design standpoint, I 
think that's something that I learned there. And I feel I want to continue in the practice, but the overall narrative is very different from what it was, the way things are done at SOM. And I think it would be more aligned to uh, firms like Kengo Kuma or Herzog de Miron, or uh, where there is... There, you know, every project has a different route and how you're addressing that route <laughs> without the work being a self-reflection, meaning you're reflecting on the previous work you did. And I think that approach, Sam, uh, I feel you're reflecting back on your own body of work. And I think that is something which I feel is not healthy in terms of creating uh, meaning. Mm. Do you know David Ajaya? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think the path you're framing for me is much more similar to his than I... I mean, Herzog and Demeron, I think, is close. But I, I think Ajaya, for instance, is a very similar... You know, it sounds like he went through a similar process of unshedding or shedding the certain weight of a, a type of architectural knowledge and reestablishing a different, more meaningful or more rooted kind of approach to architecture, I feel. That's I mean, I, I have the opposite approach that you've had where only now am I, you know, re-diving into to the architectural discourse for you know to try to speak the same language to a significant degree or to understand how to speak the language mm -hmm. uh, while bringing in these other layers but Ajaya for instance I encountered this year and as soon as I thanks to my wife actually uh, she was listening to a, a lecture by him while I was listening to the lecture by Neil Denari, she had opened up this one. And as soon as I heard him speak and saw his work, I thought he has to win Pritzker. <laughs> There's no way. I imagine in his lifetime, I was thinking like within these five years, he'll definitely win. But it seems like he's, I mean, very much a significant figure in terms of talking about, you know, not just formal languages, but other incorporating other significant narratives. It's very interesting that you bring him up because I really like him. I like his approach. I don't know what it is, but I feel, I feel for me, having the otherness has been very critical, mm. meaning I cannot imagine. Meaning as a person that you have an outsider perspective? Exactly. I, I mean, I cannot imagine having the same perspective I, if I were born in the U.S. and living in the U.S. Mm. Uh, I can never imagine have, having the same perspective. And maybe, I don't know, I think Jai had a similar background that he had an otherness. And I think because at the end of the day, it is so specific, right? Uh, architecture is so specific and it is so personal so i think that individual story is important so right now you said when you got updated that i started my practice that this is a bold move to take and addressing that comment i wouldn't have taken that move if i were just in the u.s you know mm. if i the possibility of working in a context that i'm familiar with and i want to sort of place myself in that context and do work or intervene in that context that I'm familiar with gave me confidence that wouldn't have given me if I were just in the U.S. Because it, you know, that takes us back to, you know, all the over-standardization, over-regulation that creates a high barrier for you to cross to start a practice in the U.S. And I think I would have been bogged down by that barrier and never thought of this way because unless you are at a certain scale, I feel doing interesting work in the U.S. is a very difficult thing. And I think also the way regulation works, it's highly impossible. But a lot of these people, I think Europe is an easier context, to be honest, for me to, uh, the way I see it, to work in 
the problem of not having too much work in parts of Europe, that's a different issue. But I feel it is a little more, much less stringent than the way things are in the U.S. But I kind of digress from your Ajay point of view. But I think uh, back to that, uh, I would say that's that's a compliment. Thanks, Jem. <laughs> I really respect well, the material and, you know, I still don't quite understand the ecology of uh, like this, the network of the, you know, the layers of architectural practice in Europe. But from what I can understand, talking to folks in Spain, it seems to be a much higher proportion of smaller sized firms that are like competitions that are public competitions seem to form a lot of the bread and butter for a lot of offices. And what's surprising to me is a lot of the practices, even though they may be working on you know smaller scale work are able to produce a level of criticality isn't the right word because i think there's a very this thing where i'm 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 still trying to formulate this also but different parts of the world are sucked into different types of jargon and i think the one type of jargon that a lot of europe is sucked into is an obsession with craft uh the way that Louis Kahn, for instance, talked about what a brick wants to be and what a column wants, you know, what concrete wants to be, what a wall wants to be, like almost like a metaphysical approach to material. I think that has somehow embedded very deeply into Europe to the point where the material, the space, it's talked about with a level of purity that I don't think I've seen anywhere else in a level of craft. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so they're able to achieve this very meaningful work in those regards. And I think they have a bit more of a subtlety and a intricacy with which they approach the work. But I think there's other gap that aren't, you know, that aren't so that are easier to address in the US. Like in the US, for instance, I think there's I've encountered more smaller scale firms doing much more radical social agendas although they don't get paid much and they're they're working almost as non-profits and so forth but i think i've encountered that radical uh, social uh, architectural firm much more frequently also sprinkled with huge amounts of just cookie cutter production you know mm-hmm. high-end capital production mm-hmm. architectural firms so I, I don't understand the exact complexity that's happening here i think there's a much healthier and financial sustainable model where the few European friends that we do have, it seems like they're able to maintain decent livelihoods in a much more meaningful and probably ethical is the right word, uh, ethical sort of, they can maintain their ethics on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and then maintain an architectural office that way, which I think in the U.S. was quite difficult unless you were, again, working within this radical field, which I think there is that kind of utopian optimism sprinkled throughout the U.S. But for years, for instance, the practice, I think one of the key points that you had talked about was this difference in you know, you just said regulation and lack of regulation or or too much unregulation, whatever the term would be. And the other aspect that you had mentioned was, I had never sort of heard it concisely put as that, but basically in, in the US, right, labor costs more than material. And then in sort of uh, Southeast Asia, material costs more than labor, typically, right? That the there's a very big distinction there could you could you i mean how do you negotiate that on a you know with these projects occurring in different parts of the world because that seems to be a very different algorithm like a very different way of thinking that you have to employ yeah i think the priorities are completely different when you're working on a project in the u.s versus project working in South Asia, where typically construction labor cost is cheaper than material cost. So one aspect that gets really highlighted on is when you're talking about quote-unquote VE process, value engineering process, where construction 
almost every architecture project is over budget. So when you're talking about reducing clients or contractors are talking about reducing budget of a project or reducing the cost of the project, the conversations are going are in two different directions. Like when you talk about using cost in the US, it is both about material, but also about labor. And people will talk about this kind of rick layout or this kind of finish takes a lot more of, uh, it will need a lot of labor cost. Versus in India, I think that is an issue in, in larger projects where if you want a particular way for the joint to work and over the span of, the, of a larger project, costs can be raised considerably. But I think so in terms of a project, a post-design phase where things are being worked out, that is a clear ramification of that difference. But also in terms of if I have to look at it, you know, just beyond the thing that you mentioned, material cost and labor cost, I think there is a big implication of standardization, the way it works in the U.S. versus under-standardization in India, over-regulation in the U.S. versus under-regulation in India. And both have their advantages and uh, disadvantages, I feel. And you know, another thing I feel, the way drawings work in the U.S., we over-document a project. We create a small project may need 100 drawings to be permitted and medium-sized project. But in India, the number of drawings that you will need might be significantly lower because a lot of laborers on site will not be able to read drawings, which is a very different scenario from the U.S., right? Mm. So all of these in combination, so what is a drawing? It essentially is an instrument to transfer information for someone to build. We are the only art discipline that we do not produce or not involved in production of our design or our work, right? So we are using drawings as our means to produce something and translate that information. But what if that means of production does not work at all or means of translation does not work at all if the person who's building it is not able to read the drawing? So I work with my partner, uh, Shubro, in India where we figure out how we will convince the carpenter or the mason at the site by going to the site and sometimes sketching in the site or laying things out there or sketching on the wall or sketching a detail on the wall right there rather than having a printed drawing. So it's a very different uh, approach. And definitely those have a strong implication in the kind of work that is designed, but the kind of work that gets put together because of that difference of uh, economy, difference of you know material versus labor, that relationship. Because a lot of, yeah, it, it just flips the whole thing on its head. Hmm. Yeah, we, we've had similar experiences, I think, with, you know, if you think about submitting a, a permit set, we, we had one project, you know, tiny projects compared to what you're showing, but there was a project in Oregon, and it was sort of this Buddhist temple, small little thing, I, I forget, I think 4,000 square feet or something, but it was, That's great. I mean, there's, well, some complications about like how to use Sri Lankan building typologies and material understandings in US hit some very interesting hurdles, but uh, the permitting side what you said rang very true and that to get a building set approved you know in sri lanka the equivalent would have been you submit a plan elevation and some structural drawings i think mm-hmm. and it can go through in hillsborough it was there had to be we, we already had to have you know such degree of calculations you know down to hvac systems and and electric lighting and so in lighting i remember it was so intensely the details that they were requesting they were asking for how many 
lumens would be falling upon the number that would be listed on the building, you know, on the facade, like, you know, 306 West Chesterton Avenue or something. Like how much, how many lumens would be falling on the 306, like to that level of detail. And I just remember I was asking around about it, you know, to other friends who were in a similar moment. And one fellow had, you know, summarized it really well. It's basically everybody's afraid of being sued. Yeah. So they embed, you know, barriers. Yeah. In Sri Lanka, for instance, if you're a structural engineer, you put your stamp on the building. And if something goes wrong you're responsible there's you know degrees of uh, maybe the contractor built it wrong and so on there's those levels but in u.s in a lot of cities it seems like for instance you need to have a licensed structural engineer then the city employs a second structural engineer who verifies what the first engineer did and then it goes through a fire engineer that you know also verifies something else and then you as an architect stamp it but then there's also a city architect who verifies it and so on and so forth. And there's so many layers embedded into it that they were like, my friend asked somebody, what's the likelihood that this would ever bounce up the ladder and the architect would actually end up getting sued, the, the city architect? And they said, it's extremely, I mean, it's nearly impossible. The city architect or the city engineer, it's nearly impossible because you have, you know, three other people behind you and, and you know, dozens of form forms indicating that others are responsible. Mm. But I, I found that deeply, you know, troubling just to see that, that there's, you know, uh, everything from technical safeguards, multiple safeguards to, you know, community participation that has to happen on that. We don't quite understand how to even use it as a system, but we're just going to, you know, have community meetings regardless. I, I think that's one of the huge misunderstandings of urbanism actually today, that what the nature of public participation is and what the nature of the wisdom of groups are. But I just realized the whole thing is set up in a way that yeah. one, it makes the process extremely costly that small scale development can't occur like organic bottom up development can't take place without really satisfying these systems but the other one was it just made the process so boring like you just want to get through it and and start diving into this that I, my worry one of the worries that i have is that the generation of architects being generated in the us may be people obsessed with paperwork you know that they're the ones who got filtered across these countless layers of boredom and were able to go through it and the creative spark just gets sucked out of them in the process. I, I think that's very well put. I think it's got a lot to do with the overall ecosystem of the way the country is structured as a yeah. litigation economy. And yeah. basically, the you know, the IBC was developed in the US and it was something that was written down for insurance companies. And I think that statement was true in the 1800s, and it is true in 2021 too. It is the way the system is structured. It is for the benefit of insurance companies. And that's how the medical industry works. That's how the auto industry works in the U.S., which I feel is um, is a shame, especially in, in architecture, because it is very different from the auto and the medical industry. And there is a degree of you know creative intellect or creative freedom that you can pursue through these projects and sort of purity that will be lost. There's no doubt gets lost easily unless you're working at a larger scale where the momentum of the project is much, much higher than the momentum of a small to mid-sized project. And doing a public project in the U.S., it's A, to get those commissions, but B, to go through the participatory process. And I don't believe the way the things are structured, they are structured in a way to help design good communities. That's my belief, and I think a lot of urban designers will disagree with me. 
I think it is designed in a way to work with that litigation economy or work with the insurance companies. I think actually, no, I think you're right. I think a lot of urban designers would disagree. I think I would echo what you're saying, though. I, I think the rather than litigation, and, and this is one of the things that I've been trying to formulate as well, but I think this is one of the really big ones that have been misunderstood. So public participation, right? It became glorified in the 1960s with Jane Jacobs mm-hmm. as a method for communities to mm-hmm. resist heavy-hitting power players like Robert Moses, like people who wanted to run highways through communities. And this method of public participation was established as a way of one, establishing a check and balance on power, but the other one was actually making the shapers of the built world aware of their blind spots, right? So understanding that as an architect, as an urbanist, you're operating within this bubble, and it's actually good to hear community voices and so on. I I firmly agree that this this is a fantastic, very much needed thing that was required what it's devolved into though i think is basically again sort of people afraid of getting pushback for allowing any type of construction to go through which i think is a mistake to begin with but the other thing that it's given people the thought is that if you own a piece of land or you're a member of a community that you have the legal right to impose your vision of that community on everybody else which I don't know the origin of that as a concept in terms of why that would have been acceptable. But in the United States, of all places, you would think that would get pushed back more than anything else because of their obsession with Mm -hmm. property and liberty and so forth. But it's one of the strangest conditions where in the U.S. you can have somebody echoing, screaming about freedom of speech, but at the same time screaming about their neighbor's expression of freedom of speech through some sort of architectural building. But I, I I find the whole public participation thing, the big, the fundamental discrepancy is actually to do with um, how we think collective wisdom takes place. So, Uh you know, the free market capitalism, Adam Smith and so forth had this, I think, framed it fairly succinctly. He said that if you give people specialized tasks, and I, I found out actually this was echoed by Thomas More about his ideal notion of why cities made sense. But he said, if you give people specializations, they become hyper focused about this, and they can push these areas in you know disciplines at a strength and speed and rigor with which you couldn't do it if everybody was not specialized right so you have this realm of specialization everybody's in cities you don't have to grow your own food and make your own medicine and sew your own clothes and so forth you can just be the architect right and and somebody can just be the tailor and somebody can just be the medical researcher and somebody can you know just be the baker and so forth so you get this hyper specialization that occurs and the city as a whole becomes this generator of signals being sent by these different people that are creating the market, right? So that people can read signals being sent forth by architects and bakers and medical experts. And I forget what the other one was that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Then the system becomes the other people start reacting to these signals and you get this hyper level of complexity that quickly develops over time. That for me is the fundamental notion of the wisdom of groups. Like that's actually how you embed wisdom into collective society that you create this sort of porcupine structure that keeps moving out and creating signals and allowing for signals to push back. 
What wisdom of groups has been interpreted as is that if you get a bunch of people together and allow them to voice their opinion on something, they're going to come up with the best solution, which is isn't valid, hasn't been validated anywhere. Like the you know the basic joke about committees, for instance, I find very useful is that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. They couldn't agree on anything, so they <laughs> yep. mushed up all these parts together. And listening to these community participation sessions, I find it one deeply distant from what Jane Jacobs talked about in terms of why they were needed but then i just think we're giving we're giving we're confusing mob rule like the rule of the mob or rule of the majority with democratic values and i think when it works in our favor and we get progressive and society moves forward in a useful direction it's it's great but when it moves in the other direction through the exact same mechanism then it's a problem and i think part of the issue is we're designing the mechanism through which the majority can shape society and if it works well great if it doesn't then the the mechanism just has its own momentum. But Orgo, one thing, so to to shift gears a little bit, and I, I know we have limited time, but I'd like to, you know, the one project that really caught my eye, one is the partition project, which I'd love to get into. But the first one that I think has a very interesting strategic sort of placement is the, um, let me get the name right here, Krishi Bari. So you're focusing on sort of the countryside, it seems like, or at least the hinterland with something like this. Is this a strategic move for the firm to actually start to think about how you can revitalize the hinterland, the countryside, a more agricultural, you know, the agricultural domain rather than the urban domain? Or is this just a one-off project for you? No, I think... Uh... I would say I would agree with the former. It, it is, uh, we we are interested, because when you look at India, of course, there's the historical narrative of the country over its thousand years of you know, mixing and intermixing. But there's also the, you know, the real India is in its villages, in its hinterlands. And I feel this project, you can say, you know, was initiated as a reaction to a severe cyclone, a storm that happened that destroyed villages while covid was in full swing while COVID was killing people. And we came in, um, or I got involved, I was reached out by this NGO that is run by my friend of mine who is an architect, but he practices as an artist. And we have amazing conversation because he has been practicing as an artist. You know, that goes back to the same conversation, you know, when an architect's talk versus when the conversation is interdisciplinary. Mm. So we reconnected after a while and he spoke about the urgency of doing something in these villages. But at the same time, the because of COVID as a reaction to COVID, the reverse migration of migrant workers happening back to the villages and they did not have a means of livelihood because agriculture is becoming more and more industrialized like the US. Slowly it'll, it'll, get, it'll take much longer. But so when, when they move back, the problem with all the salinity in the water because of seawater getting into the river's backflow, they can't do agriculture. Mm. And a lot of NGOs are working in helping them to increase productivity after such a storm hits when uh, there's flooding and that creates high saline levels in the water. So how do, you, how do you increase productivity? That's some NGOs working on that. But we thought this during a regular time would be a place where the village would come together and these NGOs could work out of and sort of working on the idea of agricultural city that was propagated in 1960s Japan by Kishokurokawa, where they spoke about the difference between city and villages. 
which was, it, it's very different, Japan's villages versus Japan cities and the villages of India versus Indian cities. But what we thought is this will be sort of an empowerment, empowering mechanism for these villages so that agriculture could become a means of production. Like cities have their own means of production and a lot of it is intellectual production that happens in the cities or uh, in hinterland, sometimes there's physical production that where factories are located textile factories, but where do not have any of that, where you are living in a life that's been from time immemorial, how do you continue that quality of life without going to the city and working as a security guard in the city or working in factory in the city, but you continue with agriculture, you can thrive in the villages. So it was our push and a lot of it also had to do with uh, my friends uh, Shantan, my partner Shubro, who we are developing the project. They went on multiple site visits, did in interviews and figured out how much space they live in. What is their storage space? And this was a very complex brief that we developed. And I feel it's far more enriching than brief for designing, I'm sorry, a, a hotel where, you know, a big high hotel client would come up with a thousand page design brief, laying out every single area requirement or qualitative and quantitative requirement. But this was based on a series of interviews. And I think that is community participation. But what... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is you know we we went to the villages, participated in these interviews, came up with these questions that we posed to them, and uh, we were able to carve a brief that were essentially carved by them, and we were able to respond to that, come up with spatial requirements. But we weren't talking about proportions of a window, like I was talking to the planning bureau in Oakland. Because they felt uh, their creative energies were not being utilized. So they were marking up elevation, saying that windows should be larger by one foot. And I think that's actually the problem mm. uh, with regulation in a lot of, in the U.S. context. But in India, the, the, because of the lack of regulation, I think there is a freedom to do things. And there you run the risk because there's a lot of insensitive things that are going on. They're building all these out-of-place glass boxes and these all, uh, this whole thing about creating 100 new smart cities and with, where there is no conversation about the local context, what should be done. It is about placing a whole bunch of sensors and a whole bunch of, uh, I don't know, it, it is about creating that super surveillance state that uh, defines a lot of the new smart city work that has happened or other work that are happening in the hinterlands. But over here, it is a clear ground and working with the local, we have been involved with the local government, which is the smallest unit of government in India. It's called the Panchayat. We have been involved with the Panchayat heads in these villages. And they are just happy that someone, a group of people are genuinely interested in doing something that has a bigger social impact. And they can see that how addressing the agricultural issue of water salinity and also another project that we started working on is a filtration, water filtration plan. Because if you look at the landscape that I have shared with you there is water everywhere like these are hundreds of islands in that landscape but there is no drinking water and after a storm more so it is true after a storm so we we are trying Mm. address uh, the real issues that they face on the day-to-day life and see how we can respond to those issues and participate with the community i think this is an ideal discussion at the same time while responding to it we look into the five, six hundred year old or even thousand year old hut architecture that has a typical, you know, a curved ridge. And I think I'll share those, share an image of those huts. It's fascinating. And those huts influence the temple architecture of Bengal. It influenced the mosque architecture of uh, Bengal when the 
of you know, the Mughals were in India and the root of that. And it also influenced, strangely enough, the concept of a bungalow. The word bungalow is from the word Bangla, which is which essentially means Bengal, which essentially means the region that Sundarban is located, where I am from. And they, the British, had developed the, the typology of the bungalow based on the local typology of the huts and how and the word was derived from there. And how what the British took forward is, of course, not the form, because they thought, in my opinion, they thought the form was probably derogatory. If they copied the form, it will be, they will be copying the natives or copying the local people. They wanted a more pristine a perfect straight pitched roof form, but the typology of having a veranda, having an open space and having a semi-open space around, those kind of infiltrated into the bungalow typology. But in parallel, in an, before the British arrived in the late 1600s or uh, mid 1700s there were um, you know there was a long history of temple architecture of mosque architecture that was derived from the form of these houses so and i think that is a very interesting place to operate in when where we are looking at a typology that have influenced so many different things a temple a mosque a bungalow which has been propagated by the East India Company and the British Empire, even in the U.S., in parts of Europe. and But it had its roots. Of course, there was a hybridization that happened with the European typologies, with the local American typologies, but the word itself and the, uh, the location of Veranda all around it, it was influenced from this region. Mm. It, 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 it's, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful project. I mean, the scale is quite enchanting to see these sort of internal spaces and external, how it looks as... You know, very vernacular, grand huts almost, but they're huge, no? Sitting on the landscape. So this starts construction when? It says 2021? Yeah, so we, we are in the process of uh, refining. We did a recent site visit and we are in the process of refining uh, some of the design based on some local inputs that we received. And the NGO and us, we will help raise funds for construction. And hopefully we can get the ground hitting in six months. That's great. I, and what you outlined, I think, is one of the great layers of how to actually access, you know, the wisdom of a group in that you obviously have, they, they know more about surroundings, their systems, their methods of, you know, socioeconomic dynamics than you do. So actually tapping into that knowledge, I think, is quite critical. The way, What you said about Oakland, again, that was the experience we had is just, it seems like there's all these layers that are doing unnecessary things and giving giving people a pencil when maybe something would have been more useful i don't know it's it's quite complex i find it quite strange that how we think of public participation is so unquestioned mm -hmm. but i think that that's one of the big ones for sure that has to shift in terms of understanding why we need it but understand where we need to stray away from i think the, way, the current model i was just briefly gonna say that the way you laid it out the origins of public participation in the U.S. I was aware of it, but it was framed beautifully that it started off with Jane Jacobs protesting against Robert Moses, and it ended up being what it is today. But yeah, go ahead with the next question. Yeah, I, I mean, the two examples that I recall, you know, that come to mind, for instance, are, uh, you know, with that specific realm, it's... Um, it's public participation that blocked the the building of that highway that would have cut through, you know, the I think it's the Lower East Side in, in New York through Jane Jacobs. But I mean, public participation has been used in really weird ways that we don't even quite understand. I mean, I, I recall there were mosques being attempted to be built in cities post 9-11, and they were blocked through public participation. Like, I recall that too. And it's the same 
same mechanism. Yeah, one talks about you know the maintenance of diversity, and the other one is the actual exclusion of of diversity. But anyway, Orgo. So let's talk about this uh, the partition project because I I thought this was you know it's one of the earlier projects that you there's the women during partition, but then there's also the refugees of the British Empire. These are some of the earlier you know projects that you you sent. What's the what's the background on these? The background is uh, I grew up you know family that was on both sides of the border in, in terms of our family my parents side my both my mom's side and my dad's side the family originally was in uh, the region around dhaka and other districts of bangladesh there was no bangladesh back then it was one cohesive territory and but they were also working in the part that became india so we didn't actually go through the pains of the refugee crisis having to travel across the border leaving everything behind but our families my actually my my grandparents families they went through the pain of not being able to go back because they were working in india at that point knowing that there might be communal riots happening and seeing the way the political atmosphere was they decided to be in india the part of the part that would be called india but they lost a lot of their property their belongings back in what became bangladesh in 1971 but was east pakistan after the partition so i was curious about this subject but if i have to trace it back i think i was mentioning you about this period of self discovery by reading up on india and reading up on history of india by a lot of history scholars i i started reading about partition and read three books on the subject by indian scholars as well as by british scholars and got to know a lot about it and then got involved with this non for profit 1947 partition archive they have they have been archiving interviews of survivors of the partition and the partition was it was the largest forced human migration in history of 15 million people 80 million people were affected and 2 million people died thousands of women raped and abducted it was you know unbelievable the scale of the genocide and we talk a lot about the jewish holocaust every a big majority of the world is aware of, about the jewish holocaust but during the same time there was a famine in bengal that killed 3 4 million people and this and partition in 1947 to combined these two events killed more people than the holocaust and this was very strategically pushed under the rug and people didn't talk about it because it showed failures of the british empire clearly but even yeah. when there was independent mm. history was history was about glorifying people that ruled history was about those uh, british trained lawyers which included gandhi nehru who was the first prime minister and jinnah who, who was the first leader of pakistan but it never was about i didn't study history from a point of view of people and this the great thing about this uh, initiative is that this it's flipping history on its head by making history about the oral history of citizens it's not about glorifying the people that ruled but it is about people's narratives so i i got interested in the subject uh, got in touch and helped them curate a couple of these exhibitions one was uh, very significant because it was done inside a train terminal not not that the same train terminal had any impact during partition but uh, during partition people migrated on foot people migrated on bullock carts people migrated on trains and trains were burnt completely trains would arrive in train terminals there are movies that document this with thousand dead bodies inside completely charred and it was horrific and british soldiers who were there during 
uh, partition who were part of the World War II brutalities in Europe, they said that they have not seen anything close to that during World War II. And this is something people don't know. And another aspect is people are dying. Those people that were alive, those who migrated were dying. So I think there's an urgent need to document them. And I'm, I'm just acting as a facilitator. You know, I cannot go deep into these subjects because then I'll be digressing from forming a practice or running a practice. But I keep a certain amount of my time to be involved with non-for-profits, with NGOs, to create to help facilitate projects like this and also we are working with a trust in Calcutta called the Kolkata Partition Museum Trust and we will be launching the first virtual partition museum that will be launched on the 75th anniversary of partition in a year and a half and i think the the need is immense because of the current political state not only of india but also around the world of uh, communal riots, of refugee crisis. There's a lot of resonance that can happen through this. I think I, I find there's a rhetoric in the U.S. that says everything, we, we are all the same, right? It, it talks about people being same. And although we know we are not same, no two, even twins have different uh, fingerprints. So no two individuals in the planet we are same and their differences grow wider when we belong to different races. So I, I feel we should celebrate through projects like these that we are different. But what happens when we highlight those differences without accepting those differences? And, you know, genocides like these happen and we see that in Syria, in Burma with the Rohingya Muslims, in Afghanistan, people being killed. And I think a lot of people don't associate that. Uh, don't cannot find that connection between partition or things that are happening today in India. And I think it's even more significant because of the political situation India is in. And I try to be apolitical, but sometimes it is just a social reaction on politics without being affiliated with one side or the other. I think there's a lot of injustices that are happening. And I think this is a good learning example that we killed millions that we had lived together with, not that my family went through the killing process, but I have become friends with people from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, through this organization that I'm able to have a conversation and able to argue about a subject and hear about their viewpoints. And there are people who start crying, people who are older or whose parents died. They would start crying in the middle of a session we would have uh, during one of these exhibitions. There were public events organized. And it just shows that, you know, it is so serious. But the Holocaust, because... And I think that should be highlighted. Of course, it should be highlighted. But the way Germany looks up at their past in the eye, I think India is not able to do that. And I think we should be able to do that. And projects like this will help us do that. Hmm. Do you worry, Orgo, if you had formed your office? I, I don't know if you had this urge to sprint into forming your office. I know I know for a lot of a lot of us, it was like, okay, as, you know, as soon as you can get your hands on a project that's yours, the you want it to happen sooner than later. But if you, if you had formed your office right after grad school, is there? I don't know if you reflect on this, but something that came to my mind when you were talking is, I wonder if Orgo had formed his office in 2012, how long would it have taken you to get into this? You know, you're you're talking about layers of thing it would have happened. Let's say narratives of significance that are, I think, you know, per your own words, like very different than what you had. I think we all had different interests. I don't, I don't think that's that's an uncommon one. I think it takes a little while to break out of you know silos and 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 start talking about societal issues. And but do you do you worry like if you had rushed it that you actually would never have had 
the ability to get this kind of clear or more layered or more complex approach to what architecture could be? I, uh, I would say very good question, Jam. I think it wouldn't have happened in all honesty. If I look back, my interests were different in 2012, 2013, and it would have been a very naive approach, which a lot of people have in countries where regulation is low, they start their practice right after undergrad, which is very naive and very unidirectional approach. And I think I would have followed in that trap. And with the uh, learning from grad school, I wouldn't have unlearned some of that. I feel that the period, the six and a half, seven years that gave me to ruminate on these issues by the process of reading, by watching movies that I didn't watch before, by reading books that lay outside the realm of architecture. I think if those wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have been able to, in all honesty, maybe I wouldn't be interested as much as I am today without that uh, break, without that break of six, seven years. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think I'm going to, if I do interview more firms, I I mean, I'm really interested in this. Like, how do you actually, I think academia is a weird one, right? So for instance, I, I, a PhD is like one of the greatest luxuries I think you can ever give somebody because it's sort of five years, four to five years or six or seven, depending on you know how long it takes, uh, where you just sit and read. You're basically paid to read, right? But it's that it's that it's a luxury that most people don't have. And I think if I had, you know, I, I go through so many phases where you think of what you you think of the biases and the ideas and the sort of silos that you can discard over time, but it's all due to this sort of extended periods of reflection, analysis, reading, you know, digestion of knowledge that you'd never encountered before. And it seems like that's not a common, for some reason, I I don't think anybody in uh, undergrad, grad, PhD had ever recommended that as a model, you know, like as a model to I think you're, what you said is you, you unlearn some things and you learn some new stuff, right? The, but that you need time to do that. And, and for some reason, we don't teach that time as being a critical one. And I, I was thinking about, you know, what would have happened? Because in undergrad, I never thought I would go past undergrad. Right? I thought I'd just, you know, start. Uh, I think I thought I'd be an, a writer at that time or something. But I thought I would just start producing architecture and writing. Mm-hmm. And I think of the pace of architecture and how how aggressively it blocks any, you know, time to actually reflect anything that you could just get stuck in this lineage that you started in undergrad Mm -hmm. and 60 years down the line still be producing the same thing. It's a strange one that we don't actually train our students to be, I'm talking globally here, to to actually think of that pace that you, you know, you think of a six, seven year gap or whatever as 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 a very required reflection so that you can actually form a meaningful practice in in the current day. No, I, I think Jem again you you phrase things very well. I, I feel that that 6 7 years to me was in a way doing my undergrad a 5 year undergrad that I took 6 7 years to do and at the same time I was trying to do my PhD by reading things but not as aggressively because I didn't have as you said I didn't have time the luxury of time when you're doing so I was, you know, reading over weekends during the week and, and at work, I was trying to make, learn how to make a building. And I think I, to be honest, without talking to you, I wouldn't frame it as an approach and I wouldn't, it is highly personal and it happened, but that is not the way everyone should approach it. But I feel yeah. to you, I think yeah. that 
parallel period that was there, it helped me formulate things well. And without that, if I had jumped into, and you know what, I think uh, having student loans is a great thing. If I didn't have student loans, I would <laughs> I would have uh, gone back to India. I would have started my practice right after grad school. But student loans, the pain to re repay them, uh, I was a very disciplined person in terms of that. Uh, it took me three, four years to repay them, which people take ages to repay. But I think that period to repay, and I knew I had to be disciplined. So I had to work. I had to stay in a place that gave me a rigor to concentrate on other things over weekend or even during the week while I'm trying to, I would joke that I work at SOM to pay my rent and pay my student loan, but it was much more than that. And I'm indebted to SOM for that, people who I worked with and I learned from. And But the student loan provided that framework for me to get those seven-year gap and build savings while I'm trying to you know, after paying off, build some savings so that I can jump into this venture. And while I was doing that, there would be projects that I started working on, like the Oakland house on the side, so that I know if I leave, I wouldn't be uh, getting on a bus that is standing still. I'll be getting on a bus that is already moving and I run and get onto a moving bus. That, that was the goal. And I feel there was uh, value in that. And some of it did work out well for me. Yeah, I, I I had this um the the best the teacher best is a dumb word but the the teacher that had I think the most long lasting impact on me was my French teacher from high school Monsieur Jorsin Paul Jorsin right he was uh in in this was in uh, Shrewsbury Massachusetts but news reached that he had passed away I think six months ago and I remember. I don't think I've been that touched by something like that before where I reached out to some, you know, students from colleagues from high school that had had a similar relationship with him and we sort of talked about it. and I was thinking of how to I was thinking is there a way to sort of frame what he meant to me in in some form and I still haven't come up with it but the I just remembered this morning where at the I think our graduation or the last class that we had with him he read us this um I don't think it's actually from the book. I think it may be a reformulation of the book, but it's Zorba the Greek. I don't know if you know this story. A great, great movie with Anthony Quinn in it. But the book, there's this uh, story about a butterfly, right? A butterfly that goes into his chrysalis, right? Like this pouch, you know, before it's born. Uh, so caterpillar, you know, forms a chrysalis and then, you know, butterfly comes out, whatever. So Anthony Quinn, or Zorba, rather, uh, uh, the, the main character is, I think, encountering this chrysalis and the butterfly is trying to get out, right? So it's struggling to get out of this and he takes the, he wants to help. So he takes the chrysalis and, and blows some air on it and the butterfly drops out of it and he, he sees, I think it falls into his hands and he, he talks about about it as a sort of withered quivering butterfly and what essentially happens i guess is that and monsieur josin put it very poetically i'm putting it sort of biologically as a butterfly is coming out of its chrysalis it has to struggle because as it's struggling it's actually pushing fluids into its wings right so it, it actually has to go through this uh, uh, sort of contracted moment and, and actually push through it to actually work biologically and in the act of helping zorba had actually you know, killed the thing. I thought of this, I mean, I think there's something about this that we, you know, the the phase that you're talking about and the phase that I'm thinking of in, in terms of my own life is that moment, I think, where you're going through, you know, I, I think I wanted to form 
a practice or go into profession in a different way at a different time following undergrad and this seemed like a very turbulent path to go through it and i don't think i have you know an exceptional view on things but i do think i have a unique series of perspectives that have been given to me because of the hurdles of you know going through the different career paths that I've gone on, the non-traditional career path, we can say, mm-hmm. uh, that most architects don't go through. And I, I think there's something about that. You know, we try to rush it, and I think we don't quite understand that it takes a good degree of time and, a, and at least a critical degree of reflection to actually begin to formulate something of meaning within within the current day. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think you're right that, you know, for each person, it's a different method and a different process, a different, you know, maybe some people take a day and some people it takes 20 years to go through that i just think there's something about rushing through directly into practice and or directly into putting what you've learned to work and, and pausing the the learning process that I, I see very commonly occurring within architecture even within academic pockets of architecture that we're sort of regurgitating things that are from the 1950s and and struggling with why we don't have a seat of uh, a seat within you know societal discussions of critical importance but i think there there's some sort of I can't put it into words, but I, I find it interesting that, that we had similar paths and we depend on those paths for where we are now. If I have to this time play gem and put, put it in more succinct words <laughs> that I've been doing, yeah. but now you're kind of digressing. But I feel, I get what you're saying. And I think if I have to put it in one liner to it, I would say that I think there is value in slowness. And I, I read about hmm. Kundera um, as a writer, I've read, is a lot of his stuff and he talks about slowness a lot and I think and I value slowness too and I feel I feel that what we are talking about is the value of protracted time is the value of slowness that can help us ruminate through ideas through things or reflect on the world around us or reflect by reading by writing by observing by analyzing and I think that can only happen with time. And I feel that you said for some, it may be a day and some, it may be 20 years. I think I would say, I would agree that for some, it can be 20 years, but I think the minimum period is, uh, I don't think I can see that happening in less than four or five years, to be honest. Mm. We need time to read and we need time to do our, uh, maybe our day job or we need time. To, so there, there is, Time has a value in all of this and doing things slow and not rushing into it, not not meaning being lazy. And, you know, it just means slow is a derogatory term in our culture of ultimate speed. But I think that is the ultimate virtue one can have by not rushing. And I feel I whenever I have not rushed into things and have rethought things, there is a value in this. This time it was a long period of rethinking because I knew I couldn't mess it up because my risks were much higher being in the U.S. I, I, the model is to spend nine months in the U.S., three months in India. If I were in India, my risk would be much lower. If things become way more complicated being in two different contexts. I knew the risks were higher, so I wanted to spend that time and you know thank uh, the the high cost of U.S. education, thank the U.S. immigration system that I got that time. And for in your case, it was a PhD. But I think if I, I'm digressing now, but I have to sum it up, I would say slowness <laughs> is, is key. And you know, providing, getting, buying time for yourself is the best thing you can do. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's put perfectly, you know, value of slowness. 
Anyway, Orgo, I, I think uh, we've been talking for roughly two hours, but I think I think that's a great note to end on. The and I, I like that you flipped the, the tables on because I I've never found myself to be a concise thinker to be honest like i think i probably have what you're describing that i can somehow reflect on what other people are saying and give it a a level of clarity i don't think that's a unique thing though honestly i find it a even in your own work like it's hard to reflect on something until you put it out into the real world and it's only after you you know write an article and publish it that you can actually understand what you're thinking i have so much trouble Mm. figuring out what i'm thinking while i'm thinking it it's only after that reflection that that it takes place but anyway orgo value of slowness i think it's a great thing to end on uh thanks so much for the time hopefully we can revisit the topic you know as things progress and and great best of luck to be honest i think you're i think architecture is a very complex field to be an ethical and morally rooted and trying to establish a practice with significance i think you're you're probably dealing with some you know very big extremes in terms of the types of projects that you're dealing with but best of luck i I think if i've encountered any story that has a a a very productive trajectory it's it's what you've just framed here so let's let's keep in touch and and see how things develop thank you jam it's it's always a pleasure talking to you and as I said, I get to know more about myself by talking to you. And I've, I've always felt that way. So it was uh, self-learning from for me to talk to you. And I think let's uh, keep this going, get the conversation going outside the podcast. And would love to you know, touch base and talk about these things because it's hard to find people to talk about some things. And I, I think we share a common and understanding of things for the lack of a better word. But thank you. Thank you. And good, yeah. good luck with the teaching and yeah. good practice too. Sounds perfect, Orgo. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye.